Welcome to another episode of Sunday School with Dr. Benson. In this short episode, I want to consider the notion of conversion. I found an interesting cartoon in which a woman and a man are standing outside of someone's door and they are saying, what's more, if you transfer from your present religion today, you qualify for our special introductory offer of forgiveness of all sins and guaranteed everlasting life. The people at the door have a product to sell. You might respond, but the gift of God's grace is free. Yes, it may be a gift, but it requires your soul. Christianity drives a hard bargain. What does it mean to convert to something? We usually think of conversion as something religious, but of course there's no reason why it would need to be religious in nature. One could easily have a political conversion, become a Trump supporter, an economic conversion, give up Keynesian economics or Milton Friedmanism, or a philosophical conversion. You could uh, become an analytic philosopher. In both ancient Greek thought and the New Testament, we have the idea of metanoia. While this is usually translated as repentance, it means a radical change of mind, uh, the noose. Though we often speak of there being a change of heart. In any case, it's a reorientation of one's own self. While we most associate this idea with Christianity, it's also prevalent in other competing philosophies of the time, as Pierre Hadot makes clear in Philosophy as a Way of Life. The OED gives a rather surprising definition of conversion that goes as follows. The action of illegally converting or applying something to one's own use. The example given is... A person is guilty of a conversion who takes the property of one person by assignment from another, who has not any authority to dispose of it. I have never thought of conversion in this sense before. In effect, one takes that which does not belong to one and makes it one's own, on the supposed authority of someone who actually has no authority to permit such a conversion. Hold on to that thought for a moment. We'll get back to it at the end. The definition labeled theology is, and I quote, the turning of sinners to God, a spiritual change from sinfulness, ungodliness, or worldliness to love of God and pursuit of holiness. The editors of the OED insist that their job is purely descriptive. In other words, they're merely describing how people use words, not instructing them as to how they should use them. But do you see the black and white choice portrayed here? You can stay in sinfulness and worldliness, or you can turn to loving God. Those are your two options. On the other hand, the competing story of Faust has many versions. One is that Johann Faust lost interest in divine things and lusted after worldly knowledge. The version told by Goethe has Mephistopheles offer Faust true happiness in exchange for his soul. Faust is only saved at the last minute by the Virgin Mary. Thomas Mann's version has the composer Adrian Leverkuhn bargain for 24 years of brilliant composing and acclaim, followed by an agonizing death from syphilis in 1940, a metaphor for the death of the German soul. The Christian story is about giving up sinfulness and turning to God. The Faustian story is the same story but told in reverse. Are we condemned to just two stories? I don't think so. While the world in which the bad people all wear black hats is comforting, and alas, racist, these stories are told precisely because actual life is so much more complex. 
We like stories in which the good people triumph. But reality is very mixed. It's interesting to me that when Jesus' disciples complain to him that there are people casting out demons in his name, his nonchalant response is that they cannot be both against him and for him at the same time. In other words, don't worry about them. That kind of response evidences nuance and complexity. If people are doing good works in the name of Jesus, yeah, he doesn't have a problem with that. In contrast, let me provide an account of simplistic thinking that well captures the problem. Richard Dawkins writes, If you feel trapped in the religion of your upbringing, it would be worth asking yourself how this came about. The answer is usually some form of childhood indoctrination. If you are religious at all, it is overwhelmingly probable that your religion is that of your parents. If you were born in Arkansas and you think Christianity is true and Islam false, knowing full well that you would think the opposite if you had been born in Afghanistan, you are the victim of childhood indoctrination. Oh, Dr. Dawkins, what are we to do with such a statement? First, picking on people from Arkansas is such a cheap shot against Arkansans, the American South, and the U.S. in general. You are doing what some Brits do extremely well, which is bully people. Do they offer some sort of Oxbridge course on bullying? And are you the professor? I confess that there was a time in my life, so distant now that it seems like another lifetime ago, that I had great respect for the Oxbridge universities. I've lost pretty well all of that respect. However, I do admit that people like yourself, Dr. Dawkins, are really superior when it comes to bullying. I doff my cap to you, sir. Dawkins is an example of the kind of writing that is somewhat common in the UK. It uses just enough facts to make the author sound knowledgeable and construes those facts in such a way that if you don't accept them, then you appear to be stupid or comatose. By the way, while I'd like to say that theists give much better arguments, the fact is that their record on arguments is decidedly mixed. For instance, when I first read C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, I was shocked. Various people had suggested that since I was interested in philosophy and theology, I would love the book. But I didn't love it for at least two reasons. The first is that the argument, to the extent there is an argument, isn't very convincing. The other reason is that at the end of the day, Lewis gives the same sort of bullying. Namely, if you don't accept Christianity, then you'll have a miserable life filled with relativism and nihilism. Really? Those are my only two options. But of course, theists and atheists are often mere images of one another. I wouldn't consider Dawkins to be giving us the fundamentalist version of atheism. Second, sir, your bit about childhood indoctrination is not quite as simple as you make it out to be. Would it not be possible that someone might be born to Oxonian fundamentalists? What about being the child of Arkansan atheists? The difficulty here is that children are taught various things. There is no possible world in which children can be raised without teaching them things. We can call this indoctrination if we don't like what they're being taught. But is it indoctrination to teach a child about climate change? Because raising a child to be either a climate change denier or a climate change affirmer sounds like indoctrination on your view. Hint. When you teach children to ask questions and present your own beliefs as just that, your beliefs, provisional and subject to change upon discovering further information, then you are merely educating. 
It's when you claim that you and you alone, or as it is the case in evangelicalism, your group and your group alone has the lock on the truth that you undermine your own position. There's nothing wrong with believing something all the while being willing to be corrected. Those of you in the front row who are now raising their hands know what's coming next. Dawkins is engaging in what philosophers call the genetic fallacy, in which something is discredited precisely because of its origin rather than its truth value. And the really smart kids in class also realize the next point, that the genetic thesis may itself have been taught to us by our parents, which would then, of course, discredit the whole thing. The problem here is that, unless you're incredibly lucky, your parents probably taught you a lot of good stuff with some, let's just say, less good stuff mixed in. Your challenge, if you care to accept it, is to figure out which is which. It's difficult to know what to do with supposedly smart people who engage in simplistic thinking. One would think they'd be able to see through their own shallowness. Alas, we are often unable to see our own limitations. And in case you're wondering, that we definitely includes me. We, I, do not know. We, I, do not know. We don't know what we don't know. Put otherwise, one of the things I've witnessed over and over is that people who are really smart are precisely the ones who are less sure of themselves. Because they're smart, they know something important, namely, that they can't possibly be right about everything. And that's the best way to avoid becoming overconfident in one's own abilities. Let's go back to the definition of conversion as taking something and making it one own on the basis of a false authority. With some fear and trembling, I must say that I find so many versions of religion to be exactly this. Making something one's own by twisting ideas while thinking that one has been authorized to do this in the name of God. The worst abuse I've ever suffered has always been in the name of Jesus. While I grow tired of people who think that religion is something for simpletons, the examples of twisting the words of Jesus into something dangerous and abusive are legion. And it's no wonder that people find that many expressions of Christianity seem so at war with themselves. It's not just Christians who say one thing but do another. Even more troubling are the interpretations of Christianity that simply distort what Jesus says. And that's all we have time for this week. Join us for next week's Sunday School. Bye-bye.